We're going to look today at growing spiritually with our, with our friends. And what we've been exploring is this idea of church impossible, inviting people in our community. People in our community don't know where we meet, but inviting them uh, to where we meet. And we've, we've looked at that challenge. We looked at the challenge of making sure that we are uh, super friendly when they come in the doors. And I believe that we are. Uh, and so that should be easy for us. When they come into this room, we need to make sure that we truly worship God. We talked last week about what worship really is. Worship's not just the singing, it's not just the message, uh, but worship is a daily experience, hopefully. And when we come together as a church body, it is a corporate experience whereby each of us, if we're truly worshiping, we're saying to God, here I am, here's my life, the good and the bad, here I am, use me. Let me be of service to you. That's what worship really is. And so our desire as, uh, as a pastor and, and uh, Dakota as a worship leader, our desire when, when you experience the songs and hear the message, our desire is that you might be inspired to say to God week by week, God, I hear what you're saying to me. Use me as you will. Not my will, but your will. That's what true worship is. And today we're going to talk about taking those guests that would come in our doors, that we've hopefully treated friendly, that they've experienced our worship together, and going the next step. And we've talked a little bit before about being more than friendly, but truly becoming friends. And so that's what we're going to discuss today. What it means to truly become a friend to someone, and how our church is set up to facilitate those kinds of friendships. And if we're going to talk about what people really need at their core, no matter whether they're young or old, no matter what kind of uh, marital situation they find themselves in, uh, no matter whether they're going to school, whether they're rich or whether they're poor, at our core, in our constitution as humans, we have basic needs. God designed us to, to be a certain kind of way. And so my question is, how did God design human beings spiritually? What did God design us for? And when we talk about that, we're really talking about the image of God in man. What does it mean for you to be created in the image of God? If you've been around church very long, you, you know that that's a fact, that you are, as a human, created in the image of God. But what does that really mean? You know, this has been debated by theologians for thousands of years. We find it in the very first chapter of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we read about being created in the image of God. But uh, what does it really mean? Traditionally, theologians have said that being made in God's image must mean something other than what, how God created animals. Because nowhere in Scripture does it say that animals are created in God's image. That is something specifically reserved for us who are humans. Uh, robots are not created in God's image. Uh, nothing is created in God's image except for you and me. And so when we think about this idea of being created in God's image, traditionally theologians have said, well, whatever it is that makes up a human that doesn't make up an animal, that's what the image of God is. And so throughout the centuries, theologians said, well, animals, they, they don't have language like humans do. Maybe being able to have a language really uh, uh, means that's what it means to be created in the image of God. 
animals aren't intelligent like humans are. And, uh, and we've come to learn that animals do, in, in their own sense, have some type of language. I was reading just the other day that, that there are certain noises that dolphins make to one another. And uh, different dolphins uh, will speak, if you will, to one dolphin and use the same type of term. And, and scientists are thinking maybe that dolphin has that as a name. I don't know. Uh, and so we know that animals do somehow speak in some kind of language. If I let my dog out all night, it will, it will bark with all the other dogs. And I don't know what they're barking about, but they just like to bark. Um, animals are somewhat intelligent, at least some animals are, uh, certainly not to the extent of humans. Theologians thought, well, maybe it's because humans have feelings and uh, animals don't really have feelings. I think all of these kind of theories really fall short of what it means to be made in God's image. You see, what it really means to be made in the image of God, we can find in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. And we read in that passage, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What we find in these verses is that when God talks about us being made in the image of God, he immediately then says, let them have dominion. And when you and I are created in the image of God, I believe that it means that we are made to be God's royal ambassadors over all the earth. You see, theologians have sometimes said that being made in God's image means that, well, it was sort of damaged. Or maybe it was even destroyed when Adam and Eve sinned. Um, but that's not true. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, it, was, it had a great effect, a terrible effect, on how we experience life. But Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, refers to Seth. In this, uh, Seth being in the image and the likeness of his father, Adam. And so obviously being in the image of his father was left unchanged. The image of God passed from one generation to the next. And, and we find that in uh, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, even more clear. When God gave instructions to Noah that the image of God continues despite sin being in the world. God said, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Do you see that? That's the, that's the biblical reason for capital punishment, as careful as we need to be with it. When a man murders another man, God said to Noah, that man who committed the murder, his life should be taken. Why? Because that man whose life was taken was made in the image of God. It was an attack against the very image of God. And so the greatest punishment must take place. And so for our purposes today, I want you to understand that when Adam and Eve sinned, the image of God didn't get wiped out. The image of God didn't even get damaged. The image of God still remained. 
within man. You are made in the very image of God, and so am I. The image of God and man means this, that God has appointed man king over creation. In other words, you, when I say man, I'm talking generically, man is God's representative, his royal representative as ruler over God's creation. In fact, the entire tenor of Genesis chapter 1 is that the king and the creator has created this world, and then he created humankind to act as his royal representatives over creation. And what we find in these verses is that as God's royal representatives, we have three continuous relationships. You have a relationship with your Creator. You have a directional relationship that goes up. And what God desires of you is that you believe in Him. We also find in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, that we have relationships with one another. What did God say about us being created in God's image? Male and female, He created them. God created man, mankind, to be male and female. We have relationships with one another. And the most basic and fundamental of those relationships is a husband with his wife. But it stands for also, uh, not only do they belong to one another, but in a more general sense, we belong to one another. And so God calls us to believe in Him. He calls us to have a good relationship with one another because He has made all of us in His image. And God obviously calls us to be a blessing to His world. God calls us to bless His world, to, be, to have dominion over His world, to be a good steward, a good manager of His world. And as someone who's a royal representative, you need to understand that you'll be called to, you'll be called to account one day for these three directions you have in life. You'll, be, you'll have to give an account for how well or how much or if at all you believed in God. How well you treated one another and you belong to one another. How well you blessed God's world. This is very fundamental in the scriptural story. And if you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, what we have here is Abraham. Sometime later, Abraham comes along the scenes, and God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And here are the words that we read in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And I want you to understand, I want you to see these three directions going on at this place and time here with Abraham. That he is to believe in God, he is to belong to God's family, and he is to bless God's world. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so in Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3, it would have taken great faith in God for Abram to leave the land of Ur and to travel until God said, stop, this is where you're supposed to go. And so, uh, that, but that's exactly what Abram did. And Abram was told that he would be made into a great nation, that there would be a great family, if you will, that would belong to one another, that they would be unique. 
and that that family would be a blessing to the whole world. You have all three concepts, believing in God, belonging to God's family, and being a blessing to the whole world found right there in the Genesis story. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, God says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. There again, here's God with his special family. They believe in him. And he says, it is not good enough that I have my family here. It is not enough for you to belong to one another. It is not enough for, my, for the sons of Jacob to relate to one another well. You've got to be a blessing to the world. You've got to be a light to the nations. You see all three concepts embedded in that scripture there. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, Jesus, at the end of uh, his experience here on earth, before he's ascended into heaven, what does he say to his disciples? He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe that all, all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. When we make disciples, what is it that we do? We share the gospel with other people, prompting belief in their heart. We baptize them. When they're baptized, what does that confer? What does that mean? It symbolizes that they're now part of a new family. They belong to one another. We belong to one another. And we teach them. We teach them to believe in God. And we teach them, obviously, to go out and be a blessing and make disciples of others in their lives. We have all three concepts here. It is embedded in our soul. It is found all throughout Scripture that we are to constantly move in our lives in three directions. Toward God, toward one another as God's family, and out toward the world. You find it all throughout Scripture. And so how does this fit into my life, into our life as a church? And what does this mean for us as we seek to bring those in our community whom God loves into our church and experience the love and the family and the bride of Christ, the, the, the body of Christ, to experience this, what does it all mean? Well, if you want to look back at the, the very first Christians, I'd ask you to turn to Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, when Jesus left the earth and he ascended to heaven, what did his disciples do? I mean, what was the very next thing they did? I mean, did Peter say, well, that was cool. I'm going to go fishing. No. Matthew said, I've got some taxes to collect. I've sort of been absent the last three and a half years from my job. No. They didn't go back to doing the same old thing. Here's what happened in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered Jerusalem, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And then uh, Luke, the historian, tells us a number of people that were there. And then we read in verse 14, All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. 
Here's the very first believers in Jesus Christ. Once their Savior was gone, what did they do? They said, let's gather together. Let's just be with one another. And so they joined themselves together. Being together was the one thing they knew to do after spending the last few years together with Jesus. In fact, he told them to stay together. And they began to pray. What did Jesus leave behind? After, when Jesus ascended to heaven, what did he leave them? Did he say, hey, here's this great headquarters. Here's this fabulous building. Everyone meet there. Because this building is going to be the most significant thing that you could ever have. No. He didn't give them a headquarters building. Did he leave them with New Testament writings for the Christians there to study? No, not yet. Those had not yet been written. They had the Hebrew Scriptures. They had the Old Testament. But they only had one thing. They had a gathering together of people who were joined by the Holy Spirit. To fulfill the mission that Jesus had given them, Jesus left them with one thing. A community of faith filled with people who had the Spirit of God within them. They became the very first small group. They became the very first church. And that's what life groups really are. That's what small groups are. We call them life groups here at Cotton Ridge. Life groups are groups of similar Christians doing life together. That's what a group of people gathered together on a regular basis really are about. It's more than simply a Bible study. A life group is to be more than simply a Bible study. It's really a microcosm of the whole church. It's a mini church. There's a church in Hawaii that actually calls their small groups mini churches. And, uh, and, and they're absolutely right. That's what a life group really should be. What is it that the earliest group of people, group of Christians, that is, do? Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. You know this passage if, if you've been with the church since day one. This passage was examined and looked at, and it's good for us to go back and see what these earliest Christians did. When the Holy Spirit came, and there were 3,000 souls saved, and that's, that's a pretty good-sized small group. They weren't a small group at that point. But 3,000 souls were saved. Here's what they did. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done throughout the, or through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, the earliest group of Christians they understood something. Even without the entirety of the New Testament, which we now have, they understood something that was absolutely critical to their own spiritual life. They understood this truth. 
I have to be with other believers. Because if I am not with other believers, then I do not receive what God wants for me to receive. And I don't bless them with what God has given me. And so it becomes very important for our small groups, our life groups, to do church right. What is it that our life groups should be doing? Three things. You find it in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 12. You find it in Isaiah chapter 49. You find it in Matthew chapter 28. You find this all throughout Scripture because it is how we are made. God calls our small groups and that, by the way, if we're doing small groups right, that is how people's needs for friendship and community and faith will be met. It is not through a corporate worship service, as, as much as I'm in favor of corporate worship services like this one. You won't find a bigger fan than me of a corporate worship service. It's where I do what I do. But it is through small groups that real friendships are made. Real relationships are made. And so that's why it's so important for us to do small groups right. What are those three things that every small group should do? Number one, we should help people believe. Help people believe in God. That's where the Bible study comes in. That's where we're teaching God's Word. And that, that's what it really is. And, and the benefit for our lives is that we're obviously spending time in God's Word, and that's the only way we are to be transformed and sanctified into what God calls us to be is when we interact with God's Word. And so the more you are into God's Word, privately or corporately, the more you can be transformed into the image of God's Son. Because you're already made in the image of God. And God wants us to be made, transformed into the image of His Son in a very practical way. God calls our small groups to believe Help people believe in God. He calls our small groups to help people belong to one another. You know, that, that's what, when we talk about a, a life group or a small group, uh, doing that aspect of belonging, what does that mean? It means caring for one another. You know, when you're involved in a small group and you're there week by week and uh, something comes up in your life, guess what? You're not alone. You're not alone. You can share that with your trusted friends. They can pray for you. They can lift you up in prayer. You don't have to go through that difficult time alone. And so it's so important for you to have that small group that you're a part of. A part of. The benefit for your life is you get tangible support. You get prayer support as well. And you, like I said, become more than friendly. You really become friends with people the more time you spend around them. The third thing God calls every small group to do it's what God calls all of us to do, His whole church to do, and it's to be a blessing. It's to be a blessing. What does it mean for a small group, a life group, to be a blessing? It means reaching beyond the group, being on mission. Not just being a group that, that says, okay, we're going to study God's Word and we're going to care for one another. That's not enough. But that small group itself needs to be a microcosm of the church, and it needs to be on mission. Have something that the group can do that is beyond themselves, that is outward-focused, that is directional and directioned out into our community in some form or fashion, in some way. And when a small group does that and you participate in it, then you have a way of living out God's calling on your life, God's mission for your life. You have a way of, of uh, giving of yourself on a regular basis 
and your group should grow because your group won't be like the Dead Sea, which only receives, but it'll be like the Sea of Galilee, which not only receives, but gives. And so that's what God calls us to do. And if we're doing church right, then our life groups will be helping people believe in God and belong to God's family, care for one another, and to bless God's world. And not only that, we'll continue to multiply our small groups and reach out more and more as God leads us.